The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations. Observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But... They will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things, without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to the fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Again, that last line. The righteous will live by his faith. Amen. Father, we pray Your blessing on the reading and the study of Your Word this morning. Lord, it is my sense, though I know every week You have a message for Your people, every week You have us in training and preparation, every week, Lord, You are building up our resources and our strength and our spirits and our minds and our bodies. But I have a sense this morning, Father, You have something You want to say, and I pray that You will help us hear You. And give me words to speak what You would have spoken. In Jesus' name, Amen.
I got up this morning planning to give one lesson, and the Lord said, no, I want you to talk about something else. I hate when He does that. (laughs) I was going to talk about a crisis of faith. You're going to see this. That's what Habakkuk is going through here. His own crisis of faith. Trying to understand, trying to reconcile things with God. I'll, I'll speak about that in a moment. But I thought, oh, that's what this is about. How to deal with a crisis of faith. How do I personally, when I have a faith crisis, work through it? Handle it? But I had a sense that that was a small-minded perspective, and yet I didn't have anything else to go on until I woke up this morning, literally, and I began reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, and suddenly I felt the Lord tapping me on the shoulder saying, you see what's going on here? This is bigger, Rick, than your personal crisis of faith. So often in church, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but so often in church and in fellowship, we talk about our personal struggles. And we apply, I apply Bible teaching to personal and individual struggles. And it applies so powerfully and so wonderfully. But we can miss the fact that God's Word is far bigger than any one of us. It's far bigger than this fellowship. It's far bigger than, than even the church worldwide. It is kingdom large. It's bigger than history. And sometimes we need to see the big picture more than the small one. And that, I believe, is where the Lord wants us to go this morning. Not to a faith crisis of my own, but to consider again a world crisis. The minor prophets that we've been going through spanned the last 400 years of Israel's history, from roughly 840 down to 400 B.C. Malachi would would end the final prophecy of the Hebrew prophets until we get to John the Baptist, who many of you have heard me say he's the last of the Hebrew prophets before Messiah comes. But there's a 400 year span there. And yet prior to that, for 400 years, God was calling out the prophets to go to His people and to warn them and to enlighten them and to get them to turn around back to Him. And across that 400 year span of time, it would not happen. And we would see Israel go down. And then we would see Judah go down and into captivity. And then even when they came back, there would be struggles and issues. And the people would not follow the Lord to the point that when Jesus came, they didn't recognize Him. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him, John chapter 1 tells us. A world in crisis. Israel was in crisis. Judah was in crisis. The whole time the prophets were prophesying. No one was listening. And I feel like I can relate. Not that you all are not listening. Not that other believers aren't listening. And yet at the same time in the church we have an awful lot who are not paying much attention to the Scriptures anymore. And we have a world that most certainly is not. Here's the article. Let me just read a little bit of this to you. Get you on the same page that the Lord got me on earlier this morning. From the Wall Street Journal. Written by none other than Henry Kissinger on the assembly of what he called the New World Order. Libya is in civil war. Fundamentalist armies are building a self-declared caliphate across Syria and Iraq, and Afghanistan's young democracy is on the verge of paralysis. To all these troubles are added a resurgence of tensions with Russia and a relationship with China divided between pledges of cooperation and public recrimination. The concept of order that has underpinned the modern era is in crisis. The search for world order has long been defined almost exclusively by the concepts of Western societies. In the decades following World War II, 
the United States, strengthened in its economy and national confidence, began to take up the torch of international leadership and added a new dimension. A nation founded explicitly on the idea of free and representative governance, the U.S. identified its own rise with the spread of liberty and democracy and credited these forces with an ability to achieve just and lasting peace. Side note, you may recall that was President George W. Bush's idea of going into Iraq. At least that's a lot of what he said after the Iraq war began. He started talking about if we can make Iraq democratic, if we can spread democracy, they will enjoy the same freedoms that we have and it will be spreading throughout the Middle East and we will see this this great surge of world democracy because people want freedom. And it sounded so good and it doesn't work. If you look at the Middle East right now, it didn't work. Democracy has not taken a hold. It is barely hanging on by its fingernails right now. Why didn't it work? Well, you know, I know, that as much as man desires, hungers for, longs after freedom, there's also something else in the human heart called the sin nature that battles against it. Well, back to Kissinger. The years from perhaps 1948, he writes, to the turn of the century marked a brief moment in human history when one could speak of an incipient global world order composed of an amalgam of American idealism and traditional European concepts of statehood and balance of power. But vast regions of the world have never shared and only acquiesced to the Western concept of order. These reservations are now becoming explicit, for example, in the Ukraine crisis and in the South China Sea. The order established and proclaimed by the West stands at a turning point and blah, blah, blah. He goes on and talks about geopolitical things. And it's interesting, but I won't bore you with any more of it. The world is in crisis. I hesitated to go there this morning for a moment because we've talked so much about this and yet that's what the minor prophets were doing. They were dealing with a world, a country, but even beyond that, a world in crisis. And that's right where we find ourselves again. And it seems to me that the only things in the globe that don't seem to be melting down are the polar ice caps. (laughs) My opinion. (laughs) So the question is this morning... Not how am I supposed to deal when I'm in faith crisis. Although that will likely be answered by Habakkuk. The question is, how are we supposed to live in these last days? How are we supposed to function in a world in crisis? With a country, our own country, many of us are concerned about whether or not democracy is going to last here. And we see it not lasting in other places. And we know the threats of the world are worse now than they were before 9-11. This is a frightening time to be alive if you don't have a foundation on which to stand. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. The only foundation, as Paul writes. How are we supposed to live? The year, back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk. The year was approximately 606 B.C. We know this because of the context of this very small book. It's only three chapters long. So it's another one we'll move through quickly. In fact, next Sunday we'll be on to the next minor prophet, Lord willing. But as we study through and think about Habakkuk, 
We believe it was around 606 to 604 B.C. that he wrote because as you read through it, the context of the things that he deals with, he deals with Babylon. He talks to the Lord, tells him, I'm sending the Chaldeans to deal with this issue in Judah. And so it must be prior to the coming of Babylon. And yet the things that Habakkuk talks about brings us very close to that point. It is the eve of the Babylonian exile of Judah. 606 B.C. Although until 605 B.C. and the stunning defeat of Egypt and Pharaoh Necho by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish, few at that time would have expected such a meteoric rise to power as Nebuchadnezzar had. The Battle of Carchemish set him up as the first true world dictator. And Babylon as the first true world superpower. And at this time, Habakkuk is on the scene in Judah and he's fearing greatly for his people. But you need to understand this. His fear is not of external invasion. His fear is of internal deterioration. As the book begins, the prophet is crying out to God because of what he sees going on in Judah, not because of what he sees going on in the outer world. He is worried for his country. He is fearing for his own people. And so he cries out to God. And the book of Habakkuk is that conversation. It's marvelous in that we see and hear the prophet conversing with the Lord, the prophet crying out, the Lord giving response, the prophet responding, and then the Lord responding in the first two chapters. And then finally in chapter 3, we end up with a song, a very emotional, gut-wrenching song by the prophet to the Lord. Yes, the book deals with Babylon's imminent invasion. It warns of that. But the greater issue, as relevant now as it was then, we witness a greater crisis. And it is a crisis of faith. I had been looking back this last week at at Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God. Many of you did that back in the 90s. Excellent study to go through, thinking about being in relationship with God and how to experience God in your life. And one of the issues, I believe it's the fifth one in the list, is a crisis of belief. That the Lord brings you to a crisis of belief. You have to move through that crisis to move on in your relationship with the Lord. And so my mind was kind of in that place, a crisis of faith, and individual ones among us, you know, myself, what do we do when we're in that kind of crisis? But the faith crisis of Habakkuk, though it's very personal, is very national as well. It's a crisis going on in all of Israel. By some translations, the name Habakkuk means wrestler. Wrestler. What's interesting about this book, and on a more personal note, the story is told of another wrestler, a 16th century coal miner's son, who became a lawyer, and then gave all of that up to become a monk, and ended up in a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther struggled in his own crisis of faith And his struggle ignited the fires of the Reformation more than I think he expected it to. He didn't set out to reform the church in those days. He was just struggling with his own faith. So sometimes God will use a faith crisis, a very personal crisis, for a much bigger reason. His plans are always bigger than ours. But Martin Luther could not figure out. His crisis was he wanted to please a holy God. 
And he couldn't figure out how to do it. And so even in his monastery days, he man, he just sent himself through the ringer. He would beat himself with whips during the night. If a single evil thought, a wicked thought entered his brain, he would just beat himself silly. He, he would go out and lie out in the snow all night long, punishing himself for evil thoughts. He went to confession so often that it said he was told to stop coming to confession until he had some real sin worth confessing. <laughs> but he was so torn up by this. And what Luther was missing, what many people miss even today, is that as Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. He's trying to please God with all this self-abuse. You've probably done it. I've done it. Wallowing in the guilt. Cutting ourselves off from things that we enjoy because, man, we're going to prove it to the Lord. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Finally, another monk said to Martin Luther, Dude, I'm sure he said, Dude, you need to study Habakkuk. And Martin Luther did. And it radically changed his life when his answer came in chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. That's your key verse of Habakkuk. The righteous will live by his faith. Now with that in mind, let's walk this through, these first, uh, this opening chapter and on into chapter 2. The oracle, you know that word by now, Massah in the Hebrew, it means the burden. This is a judgment, it's a weight. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Sound familiar? Have you prayed that prayer? Was Habakkuk a tea partier? I don't know. (laughs) But this guy was rising up in fear, in worry, in concern for his country. For what he saw going on. He looks around and he bemoans the state of things, the wickedness, the violence, the lawlessness of Judah. And it's so important to recognize that because you can slide right on by this and because God answers talking about the Chaldeans, you might assume, well, Habakkuk is talking about Babylon there. He's not. He's talking about his countrymen. He's talking about what he sees around him. He's having a crisis of his own faith. And I do ask you to think about, have you been there? Have you said, Lord, where are you right now? Why don't you do something? When we see laws coming down, when we see behavior taking place in our own country, I cannot tell you how often I've said, Lord, why don't you do something? And then something else happens and I go, and as things seem to go from bad to worse, Lord, where are you? And that's where Habakkuk is. Now I know His thoughts are not my thoughts, and His ways are not my ways. Isaiah 55 verse 8 tells us that. But Lord, 
I've read your word. Speaking perhaps for Habakkuk right now, but also for myself. I've read your word. I know how you feel about sin. And when I see even the church compromising with the world, as I see constantly, just as Habakkuk saw his people in Judah caving into sin, I confess that I ask the same question, how long? How long, Lord? How long are you going to allow it to just continue on and on and on? David prayed a prayer like that. Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Asaph. I believe it was Asaph in Psalm 74. could have been the sons of Korah, and it might have been David. You look it up and figure it out. Psalm 74, verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? How long? And in reading those psalms and looking into the heart a bit here, if we can, of Habakkuk, I believe what we realize is that a lack of faith isn't always a a lack of belief so much as a cry for help. A faith crisis is a cry for an answer rather than a, I don't believe you. Faith in crisis, a belief in crisis, is just a believer crying out and saying, how does this work? I don't understand, Lord. And Habakkuk begins, and he shares several things that, that shake up faith. That can really rattle resolve. The first one is an unresponsive silence. An unresponsive silence. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I'm praying, Lord. I'm asking. Or in the words of Jesus, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm calling out. Unresponsive silence. When we don't hear back from the Lord, we can go into crisis. And sometimes I believe that's why God does not answer directly. To allow us to go into a faith crisis, a struggle, wrestling as it were, like Habakkuk. Or uncomfortable sight. How about this one? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Uncomfortable sight. It's the downside of discernment. I talked about this recently. That as much as we cry out for discernment, be careful because when you get discernment, you see things you might not want to see. You become aware of things you might not want to become aware aware of. Ignorance truly is bliss. (laughs) I'd just rather sit in my house fat, dumb, and happy. But I begin to discern. And as I grow in my faith, I begin to see things. And I find that discernment brings concern into my faith as well. And so an uncomfortable sight. Or how about this one? Unchecked sin. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. And again, this is among Habakkuk's own people. And that is the most painful. When you see unchecked sin among your own people like within the church. As I shared Wednesday night, uh, Vicki Beeching, or Beecham, Beeching, Beeching, Vicky Beeching, a, a praise and worship artist out of out of England, 
who came out as gay, and, and her whole focus now, her whole life goal is to help the church accept and embrace and understand the homosexual as they are. And I, I keep seeing this stuff going on. And I go, really? And we've talked about this before, and I've shared with you before, it's not that I'm homophobic. I can love anybody. I know any and every sinner needs the Lord, but I'll tell you this much, homosexuality is different. So one sin that is called an abomination. And yet, what we see in certain areas of the church, and especially in the entertainment arm of the church, is an open-armed... Not, not an embrace of the homosexual as to say God loves you. Give your life to Him. Trust in Him. Give that life, set that aside and come back to the Lord. No, it's an embrace of just as you are. Just stay as you are. See, when Billy Graham used to sing Just As I Am, the point was not to come forward and stay as I am. It's to come as I am and be changed by the righteousness of God. And so we have this going on, this unchecked sin. I see it happening. It feels like sometimes, as a pastor, it feels like it's rising in the church. And we're sitting here in this little barn in the corner of North Whidbey Island trying to push back, you know. I recall being a child standing in the waves of Southern California and trying to stop the wave. And it didn't work. Unchecked sin. Unresponsive silence, uncomfortable sight, unchecked sin, all these things going on. What's the real root of the issue? I think we see it in verse 4. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. Wickedness surround. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice comes out perverted. Note this very carefully here. Therefore, the law is ignored. The law, Torah. Torah is ignored, Habakkuk says. What does that mean? Your word, Lord. Your word is ignored. The word ignored is pug in the Hebrew. It means numb or cold. And the Torah among the people of Judah had grown cold. It's Amos' famous famine of the word. That there will be a famine of the word that spreads out because the people are not reading the word, because they're not listening to the word. The word becomes cold to them, they become numb to it. And Jesus said, because note this, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Lawlessness could very easily be translated wordlessness, because the word itself is ignored. Most people's love will grow numb, will grow cold as well. And the people were numb to the very foundation of Jewish faith and culture. And David once asked this very poignantly, Psalm 11 verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Good question. If the foundations of this nation, our own presumptive worldview of the spread of liberty and democracy, if that crumbles, then what? Where to from there? I think that's what Habakkuk was asking. And God answers him. Verse 5, now the Lord speaks. First four verses were the prophet speaking. The Lord says, look among the nations, observe. Be astonished. Wonder. 
because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. This isn't something too good to believe. This is something too bad to believe. God is actually saying here, Habakkuk, I'm going to share something with you. And you're going to have trouble buying it because it is so overwhelming. And I'm pretty sure God's answer is really not what Habakkuk was looking for. Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, leopards, They're, and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. And you remember in 612 B.C. it was Babylon that wiped out Assyria. This nation comes along mightier than the Assyrians, more brutal than Nineveh. That was 612. Now we're five, six years later, perhaps right on the verge of the Battle of Carchemish that I mentioned. Verse 9, All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. And then verse 11, well, hold off on verse 11. Babylon, here they come, walking down the street. (laughs) The Chaldeans, they are part of God's game plan and they were from early on. Isaiah was talking about Nebuchadnezzar. In the mid-700s, 100 years before this, 150 years earlier, Isaiah was saying, God said through Isaiah, I'm going to raise up my servant. Before that, the Lord said, this is going to happen. This is what's coming. And if the people had not grown so numb to Torah law, they would have known. By the way, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we grow numb to the Word of God, we will not see what's coming. But if we stay in the Word, if we are practiced with the Word, if we are studiers of the Word, we will see what's coming. We will have that discernment. We will have that alertness and awareness in this world. But the Lord said back through Moses in Deuteronomy 28 verse 49, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand because they're babblers, (laughs) Babylonians. A nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moses said that. And now the Lord dials it back and says, Look, they're coming. Those Babylonians who are going to swoop down like an eagle, exactly as he spoke through Moses. Well, verse 11, the Lord continues, they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Now that's interesting to me, and we have talked about this in previous studies, how though the Lord uses Babylon and allows them their brutal assault on his people, and allows them to take Judah into captivity, and all of that, he still holds them responsible for their actions. The rod of punishment itself is held guilty for its behavior in the punishment. 
Such is the perfect justice of God. But Babylon, the biggest problem was they worshipped their own brutal strength above all other things. They were the most idolatrous nation in the world, we know that. But even more than their idolatry, even more than their icons and false gods, they worshipped their power. Their strength is their God. How much better to say, my God is my strength. My God is my strength. As we saw last week with Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. My God is my strength. My strength is not my God. Oh, there may have been a time, I think when I was like 20, 21 years old, where I thought, I'm pretty together and I'm pretty athletic and I'm pretty strong. Where perhaps for a moment there, I toyed with the idea of my strength being my God. Truth is, it is not. My God is my strength. Now, if you were Habakkuk and you heard this answer from the Lord, would that ease your mind? He comes to the Lord saying, Judah's in crisis. Think about it this way. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, America's in crisis. We look around, we see wickedness and violence and lawlessness everywhere. Lord, help. Lord, help us. And he says, okay, I'm going to have Russia invade. Or I'll tell you what, I'm going to send ISIS over. Oh, they'll be guilty for their actions, but I'm going to send them in to invade your country. Um, Okay, hang on a second, Lord. I know I was crying out and everything. But that's really not what I meant. Can can we just deal with our stuff internally here? We don't need someone to come. Here's Habakkuk, stunned by what he hears. And the prophet responds in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? (laughs) O Lord, my God, my Holy One, Um, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Okay, I I accept your word, Lord. Then he says, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? Habakkuk's crisis intensifies here. He is now more distressed than he was before. Did the Lord ever do that to you? Give a direct answer to your prayer and it upsets you more than you were before He answered you? Or you go to the Word trying to find some peace, some solace, some comfort, and you begin to read and go, okay, it's worse right now than it was. Thank you so much, Lord. But now I'm really stressed. And it's in those moments when I believe the Lord says, okay, good, now we can really deal with your heart. It's needed to push you a little further than you were. I needed you to see more than what you were seeing. Habakkuk cries out, how can you endorse their wickedness? I understand you're the Lord. I understand you're the rock. And I know that your plan works. And I know that you know what you're doing. But how can you endorse their wickedness? How can you excuse their treachery? So now he's struggling with a whole different issue. Not the problem in Judah, but the problem with Babylon. How can God use Babylon? How can God take this evil country and use it for His purposes? Does that work? Is that okay? These are great questions. And we're going to answer them on Wednesday night. (laughs) Because the Lord answers them in chapter 2. And we're not going to get there until Wednesday. 
But come on back if you have struggled with that. How can God use this wicked instrument for His will? But continuing on, verse 14. Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Now watch this. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Is this just going to be a non-stop juggernaut rolling on through history? But note what he says here because Habakkuk gives us some insight this stunning, a relevant picture of idolatry. As I said, the Babylonians were an idolatrous people, the most idolatrous people. Babylon itself had more idols in it than any nation on earth. And the, the, the main capital of Babylon was packed with paganism. But note what he says. Verse 16, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. What does that mean? It means that's their idol. Their strength is their God. Their idol is the work of their hands. He's not talking about the Babylonians out fishing in the Euphrates. He's talking about the Babylonians conquering nations, and that to them is a greater idol than any of the icons back in Babylon. You see where Habakkuk is going with this. What the Lord is teaching us here is remarkable. It's that anything that we pay homage to other than God is an idol. It is idolatry. It may be a business that I pay homage to. Well, I don't pay homage to my business. How many hours a week are you spending in your business versus with the Lord? It may be a personal relationship that you value above and beyond the Lord. Oh, I don't value anybody above the Lord. Do you have a spouse who you stay home with instead of coming to church because they don't want to go? Or a cause? Any focus in my life that I pay homage to above the Lord is my idol. Any ambition other than simply to please the Lord has the danger of becoming my idol in my life, which is why I believe John said in 1 John 5.21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. How do I do that? Pay homage to the Lord. Give all honor to Him. May He be your focus in everything, in business, in family, in relationships, in life. May God be our singular focus. It's exactly what Mitch was talking about at communion. That He be the issue all the time above every other thing. That nothing else would become idolatrous for me. And the prophet's pointing this out, that for Babylon, they're conquering. Their military might is an idol greater than any other. Their strength is their God. But watch this. As the prophet prays, his faith rises. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's his resolve. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And now we're getting to it. How to live in these times. How to deal with a world in crisis, much less my own life in crisis. 
Number one, note this, I'll give you three things to jot down. Number one, watch and wait. Watch and wait. You want to know how to deal with the problems of this life? Watch and wait. And I will take you to that very familiar verse because it's perfect. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And flying or running or walking in faith depends on waiting. Watch and wait. But it's an active, engaged watching and waiting. Notice the state here of of Habakkuk's heart. He he said, I'm going to stand on my guard post. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to keep watch to see what He will answer me. But He also says, and how I may reply when I am reproved. What does that mean? It means Habakkuk realizes that for all his questions, he's probably wrong in there somewhere. That when the Lord answers back to him, Habakkuk is already ready to repent for the things that he's asked of the Lord that were off course. I love the humility of Habakkuk. You could put it this way. I will watch and wait till God sets me straight. I will watch and wait till God sets me straight. And if I'm off in my thinking or my theology or my religion or my focus in life, if I'm somehow missing it, if my frustration or my crisis has me in a place that is not right with the Lord, I'm going to watch and wait till He sets me straight because I know He will. And that watching and waiting, you Bible students know that word wait in the Hebrew is an active waiting. It's an engaged waiting. It's not standing around whistling. It's waiting with intention to see what God is going to do. Psalm 85, verse 8. I will hear what the Lord God will say. For He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones, but not let them turn back to folly. Let me tell you, the world's approach is folly. The approach of the nations is folly. The attempts of man to bring peace to this world, all is folly. Watch and wait for the Lord. Watch and wait until He sets us straight. And until Jesus comes and sets everything straight, my friends, the only thing that can set us straight personally, nationally, and globally is His counsel. There is none other. And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. I'll explain that in a second. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. And the Lord confirms this whole concept of Habakkuk's watchful waiting. Habakkuk says, I'm going to station myself on the, myself on the, on the guard tower. And God says, good. Good man. Wait for it, because it's coming. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. He confirms Habakkuk's waiting, and then he adds something to it. And it's the second thing we do in this world. Not only watch and wait, but secondly, wait on the Word. Wait on the Word. The point of the writing of this vision is proclamation. Note that again in verse... Two, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. 
The Hebrew word read, kara, is, a, is proclaim. That the one who proclaims it may run. What does that mean? It means, I want you to send a courier out. I'm going to write, I want you to write down, Habakkuk, our conversation, that the one who proclaims, the proclaimer, the courier, might take it out, run with it, and proclaim it. It's a call, my friends, to evangelism. In Judea at the time, take this message and send it out. Send the runner to proclaim my word. Proclamation. Paul understands that very well in his use of Scripture from Habakkuk, and we'll see that in just a second. The the appointed vision was hastening toward the goal Judah would go to Babylon. Send a runner, God says, to proclaim that. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. And we often read that verse and share that for anyone who's waiting on the Lord. Look, He's got a vision for you. And His vision will not miss when it is supposed to land. He is is perfect with that. And if you're waiting on the Lord for something and He has not given you answer, guess what? He will. But not in your time. In His time, which is perfect, He will bring the answer. Oftentimes, it's at the very pinnacle of our crisis. When we don't see any other possible way out but the Lord, when the vision is explained, or the vision comes. So here's Habakkuk, and he's waiting and watching, and he's waiting on the Word. But here's the morning's answer on how we live in these days. Behold, verse 4, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Watch and wait. Wait on the word. And finally, wrestle with faith. Wrestle with faith. There's another word, probably a better word than wrestle. Probably a better translation, actually, of Habakkuk's name. How do you wrestle an opponent? An opponent? You've got to get your arms around them. You've got to embrace them. The name Habakkuk, more correctly translated, is not wrestle, it is embrace. Embrace. Embrace faith. Embrace faith. Paul said, 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jacob wrestled the Lord. Do you remember what he did? He took hold of the Lord in that night-long wrestling match and refused to let go until God bless him. Do that. Embrace faith until God blesses the embrace. Don't let go. Hang on. Well, Rick, how do I do that? And here's where we're going to run to three different scriptures. The Apostle Paul took hold of chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. And he quoted it at least twice. I think he quoted it three times because I believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Others would disagree with me. They can be wrong. That's okay. But three different times we see this quoted in the New Testament. And Paul knew what he was talking about. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
Keep this verse floating in your brain here. The righteous one will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. How do I do that? Is it, is it more church attendance? Is that it? Or what? I don't understand. Should I be taking communion more often? The righteous will live by his faith. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed, he says, of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? That means it's growing. That means you have a a tiny little kernel of faith when you first come to the Lord from faith to faith. You continue to grow in, embrace, wrestle, struggle with, work through, even have crisis with faith, but your faith is a growing faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul grabs hold of Habakkuk's statement there. Again, the key verse of the prophet's letter. Did you see it? There's your proclamation. Remember I told you a moment ago, the Lord told Habakkuk, write it down, send it out. Write it down so that it will be proclaimed by the runner. Send the runner out with it. Paul gets that. That we are proclaimers of faith. That the gospel, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes is a gospel that we are called to have faith in and proclaim with that faith. The righteous will live by faith, Paul quotes. What does it mean to live? To literally live by faith. Think about how much energy and effort people put into that question. I'll live by my faith. What are the rules? What does that mean? How do I do this? And you might read that and just say, okay, I get that Habakkuk and and here Paul now says the righteous will live by faith. My problem is I'm not righteous. How do I even get to faith? Because I'm not righteous. Wait a minute. He said, for in it, that is for in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. What's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that reveals the righteousness of God. That the righteousness by which I live in faith is I'm trusting His righteousness to see me through. I'm trusting His righteousness to wash me clean. I'm not Martin Luther spending the night in the snow. Going to confession again and again and again because i got to get myself clean. I'm not beating myself on the brow and on the back because, man, I'm just not good enough. I say, I'm not good enough, but Jesus is. And so the righteous one will live by faith. I have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who washes and cleanses me. That's what it means to live. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. I didn't come so that my people could try to absolve themselves of sin. Go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
So what are you saying, Paul? I'm saying that if you're living by the law, you're cursed. Period. If you're trying to be in and of yourself righteous and holy and pure and true, by your own behavior, by your own actions, you are cursed. You can't do it. And then he says, verse 11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Why, Paul? For the righteous man shall live by faith. Here we go again. He's just brought it up the second time. However, he says, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. That is, it's not a faith in someone else's in Jesus' righteousness. It's faith in myself. So I'm going to practice the law and live by the law and die by the law and I will be cursed by the law if that's my attitude. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The righteous will live by faith. And so Paul, in Romans and in Galatians, takes this theme of Habakkuk, one of the smallest of the minor prophets, one of the most minorist, and he takes two of his major epistles in the New Testament, Romans and Galatians, and works it around that theme. That the righteous will live by faith. That's the whole thing for us, gang. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we live. And it doesn't matter if we live in times of peace like the 80s. (laughs) Where the worst thing we had to deal with was neon fashion. Or if we live in absolute upheaval and turmoil like Nigeria or Syria. It doesn't matter where we live or in what circumstances in which we live or what time on the planet we live, my righteous one, God says, will live by faith. She's going to trust in me. Alright, one last passage and we're done. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Down in verse 32. As Paul writes, Hebrews 10.32, he says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Stop right there. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to be in partnership with those before us and even today who are treated badly for their faith? Are we willing to join them in that to endure a great conflict of sufferings and become sharers with those who are so treated? And one of the things that I see God doing in and among us at this point at the end of the age is reminding us that not all believers have had it as good as we have it. And while we are not, I know we are not going to go through through the tribulation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that doesn't mean we're not going to go through hard times. And that doesn't mean that until Jesus calls us out, that the world's not going to get worse and worse, and we're going to struggle more and more, even to stand up and be counted among those who are called Christian. I fully expect 
more challenging days ahead. And I say that with a smile on my face because (laughs) the righteous will live by faith. And so I'm not tied to the circumstance of life and how well I can set my trajectory to get to a higher point in terms of things and stuff and peace here on earth. No, I will live by faith. But going on, verse 34, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. You could insert there the fine for not allowing a homosexual couple to use your property for their wedding. $13,000 fine, I think. was Isn't that right what that was? It's ridiculous. Unbelievable. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And I'll tell you what, if in that same position I got fined for not allowing my property to be used for a marriage that is not biblical, that is not even the biblical definition of marriage, if I was going to be fined as a pastor because I refused to do such a wedding and I lost the farm for it, okay, I have a better possession and a lasting one. Continue on, verse 35. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and it will not delay. And by the way, that is a retranslation by the Spirit of God of what Habakkuk said, of what the Lord said through Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, where the Lord said, it's coming, it will not delay. He's speaking of the vision and the, and the charge, the coming of Babylon. But now the Spirit takes that same verse and reapplies it. He says, He is coming. And He is coming without delay. You see, back then it was wicked Babylon who God used to teach a lesson in Judah. Now it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming who will teach a lesson to this entire world. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And then he finishes it with this. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. My righteous one will live by faith. That's how we live. In this day, in this age, whatever we may face, by faith in the righteousness of God. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that You would assign Your words to our hearts today and that You will in us develop a greater faith. For those who believe, Father, that we would move from faith to faith. That we would be reminded, as your servant Paul said, just as we received Christ Jesus, so now walk in Him. And we began with with a little kernel of faith, but Lord, you have called us to a greater faith, as you did with your servant Habakkuk, as you did with your servant Paul, as you did with Martin Luther. So we pray now you would do in us to move us forward in our faith. If we need to go through crisis to get there, praise the Lord. But I pray our faith would just strengthen and solidify evermore around and in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Our singular foundation, our covering, our protection, 
our God who is our strength. We pray for faith. And Father, I pray for those who this morning have not expressed faith in You, Lord Jesus, that that would happen today. From faith to faith, save us, Lord, by the Gospel of Jesus, who is our salvation. 